The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Abbiamo grande piacere della sua presenza, signor Maggiore. Il nostro comando è sempre pronto a servirvi. You may find the climate of Casablanca a trifle warm, Major. We Germans must get used to all climates, from Russia to the Sahara. But perhaps you were not referring to the weather. What else, my dear Major? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 23rd, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call. Lines are open. Got a guest today. I'm going to introduce him to you in a moment. And of course, you can always email us, justwritechrw at gmail.com. I just want to read you a little poem. You've probably heard this one before, maybe as a kid, and it might be familiar, but I think it might take on a different meaning today, and I'll just quote it for you. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a nail. Well, interestingly enough, this story is going to teach us something, believable, <laughs> believe it or not, about global warming. And I am joined in the studio today by Professor Christopher Essex, co-author of Taken by Storm, the Troubled Science, Policy, and Politics of Global Warming, which originally came out in 2002 under Key Porter Books and was co-authored by economist Ross McKittrick. Welcome to the show today, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, just to let you know, Dr. Essex is a professor in the Department of Applied Math here at the University of Western Ontario, specializing in the underlying mathematics, physics, and computation of complex dynamical processes such as climate. He's a visiting professor at the Niels Bohr Institute's Orsted Laboratory and previously served as an NSERC. I don't even know what that stands N-CERC. for. NSERC. NSERC? What does that stand Sciences for? and Engineering Research Council. Okay, visiting fellow at the Canadian Climate Center and an Alexander von Humboldt Research Fellow. Boy, that's a lot of credentials there. Uh, <laughs> uh, what has it taken? Is this your basic interest? Is, is that the area you s- just work in and climate change, or is that just a side interest that came about as a result of your the science in which you were involved, if you know what I'm saying? Uh, this is really um, a career issue, um, and I suppose I maybe give a little bit of a history. Um, I was originally in astrophysics. That's where I was trained um, uh, in, and I got interested in planetary atmospheres. Uh, and I uh, went to, to study planetary atmospheres, and I ended up studying the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, in the 1970s, I was in Texas building climate models. Um, uh, and uh, at that point, uh, I had certain scientific issues with uh, some of the aspects of climate modeling in terms of my own taste. It's not to say that climate modeling isn't something one should do, but I just didn't—it didn't suit me. Uh, because I saw there were certain things I thought that were kind of undone or not uh, done fully and properly to my taste. And so I ended up going into more basic kinds of things. And uh, when I was uh, at the Canadian Climate Center, that was a postdoctoral fellowship there, uh, 
I was uh, part of the general circulation modeling group there, so it was the really big climate models. Uh, and uh, I was I belonged there, and uh, and I kind of saw what was in the models, and I know what's in the models. And I moved away and became more theoretical. I got more into theoretical physics when I got into applied mathematics, and uh, um, and in certain kinds of computation and uh, studying complex systems and so on. So all of that was ultimately driven initially by understanding that there were needs in these fields, and uh, I was attempting to um, to pursue those. Um, and so um, I eventually got dragged back into it, and here I am. <laughs> Th that's interesting. You say that, dragged back in, because you get into a field of science like that, and the next thing I hear about you, and I think probably maybe most people would never have heard about you if you hadn't published that <laughs> book called Taken by Storm. And uh, um, by the way, your co-author, Dr. Ross McKittrick, is an associate professor at the Department of Economics at University of Guelph. Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. And, and he, he kind of handles the, the parts of it that uh, that I'm probably a bit a bit wobbly right. on. So. And he is is he still a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute? Um, he was at the I time the book was I written. I don't know the details of his. Uh, CV. And uh, now, just just for so you know, folks. Now I understand you're going to be speaking, um, uh, Professor Essex, at the London Central Library. This coming Wednesday, is that the correct? The Wolf Performance Hall. In the Wolf Performance Hall between yes. 7 and 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be joined by Toronto uh, Sun columnist Laurie Goldstein, I understand. Yeah, he's going to be the, ma the uh, moderator. Oh, that should be interesting. And I guess he pr they believe that I need to be moderated because maybe I kind of get carried away <laughs> or something. I don't know. Well, for those of you who might be interested, I know the <coughs> event is being put on by the Forest City Institute. Tickets for the general public for attendance are 20 bucks, 5 bucks for students, and that includes elementary, secondary, and post-secondary. Doors open at 645. And, of course, the subject will be the Climate Change Challenge, which is uh, pretty much what the subject of today's show will be. And if you want advanced tickets, by the way, you can get them at www.forestcityinstitute.ca. Apparently, seating capacity is 369 there, so you want to make sure you get in there. Now, I just want to quote uh, from your book, uh, Professor Essex. You said at the front of it, you said, quote, We wrote this book because we got tired of seeing irrational fears about global warming cause nations and their leaders to rush around in a panic about a crisis that in all probability does not exist and enact obscenely expensive policies that would not fix anything even if it did. What was, what, what did you get tired of seeing? Maybe that's the, what were you seeing over and over again? Like there must be some constant things that you just see and it makes you cringe. There are so many things. It's, <laughs> it's hard to, uh, it's hard to, uh, I said, I think one of the ones that comes to mind just immediately when, mm -hmm. when you said that was a recent one in which um, the Loch Ness Monster is no longer going to be pursued because it's believed to be dead due to global warming. <laughs> I, I, I didn't make that I don't, up. I don't I mean, know how I missed that I one. Did, I, I, didn't, I didn't make that up. I mean, it's just that's what people are doing. And, and it, I think it's that kind of thing um, that, that, uh, that kind of gets <laughs> under my skin. I mean, the thing is there's so much of that kind of thing, and, and it preys on people's fears about it. I mean, it's not to say that there isn't some real sort of physical side of, uh, of this. And, uh, I mean, sometimes people misconstrue what the reason why there is even controversy over this thing at least the way i see it uh, the, the the way it seems to be cast is first of all there's no dispute about this issue at all uh, because there's this kind of you know uniform 
you know, ironclad uh, consensus on it. And then they say, well, maybe there isn't a consensus, but there's these bad people who have another opinion. And then people start to think, okay, it's kind of a case of sort of he said, she said, you know, uh, um, you know, it, yes, there is. No, there isn't. Yes, there is. And, and that's not really what it is about. What, what, what this is really about is the, the idea that, that we have a completely certain unequivocal kind of thing when, in fact, in the scientific world, things are not certain. So it's really a, a dispute, in my mind, between uh, unscientific certainty versus uh, uncertainty. And uh, the reason why that gets that that pole gets skewed that way is because of things exterior to science, and I, that's the part I don't like. Well, certainly a part of that has to be politics, of course. Politics plays a big mm -hmm. role in this, and we'll be getting into that later. Do you think? And maybe I'm way out of line for asking this, but do you think there's a general, um, particularly with regards to science? Uh, I don't know how else to express it. What they call a dumbing down of the populace. Um, it just seems that people are incredulous about certain scientific principles that I remember being taught as a kid that were ter perfectly natural to me. You know, things like heat, physics, the property of water. Maybe I was in a course that was different from what most people took. Well, I, I think there's there's all, all kinds of issues that one can get into, you know, education, dumbing down, all these things. But I think what it really boils down to is is two things. We have... Uh, in scientific issues, these uh, issues that that by their nature have certain kinds of um, scope and time that has to be devoted to actually understanding what they are, and the amount of time and, and attention that anyone has in our busy world to devote to this is much smaller than these things. And so the result is you're trying to take this great big package and jam it down into a tiny little hole. And the result is you end up with all kinds of distortions and confusion and fear and everything else. And you end up with these kind of persistent misunderstandings about things. And th that even that wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for the fact that every time we start with an exposition of this stuff, we don't start over from scratch every single time. So in other words, if we mess up the first time, fine, we fix it and we move on. But no, we start off with the same misunderstanding that, all over again right. and, and so forth. Well, yeah. listen, we'll get into some of the specifics on that. We're going to take a quick break right now, which will, and then we'll start, we'll come back after the break um, with, you know, trying to understand global warming and see what's really involved, some of the common misconceptions and stuff like that. Again, I'm, I'm joined in the studio by Professor Christopher Essex, a co-author of Taken by Storm. We're talking about global warming. We'll be back right after this break. <laughs> I see from the press that the that the Henderson report comes down clearly on our side. Yes, I've seen that too. Yes, that committee's leaking like a sieve. <laughs> so, Minister, there's no real case for refusing permission for the new plot, now, is there? I'm not sure yet. Oh, well, look, Jim. We've been working away at this contract for two years. It's very important to us. I'm the chairman. And I'm responsible, and I tell you as a chemist myself, that methadoxin is utterly safe. Why do you experts always think you're right? And why do you think that the more inexpert you are, the more likely you are to be right? Ministers are not experts. They're chosen expressly because they know nothing. You admit that? <laughs> nothing about technical details. Ministers have to take a broader view of the country. That's why I cannot commit myself yet. Oh, Kaka. This is the wrong decision, and you know it. It's weak, cowardly, and craven. I am not coward. Sit down! <laughs> you think you'll lose a miserable few hundred votes from a few foolish, ill-informed people in those constituencies? It's pathetic. It's politics. Exactly. 
Trying to understand the causes of climate change is akin to putting together an extraordinarily complex jigsaw puzzle in which we are still missing many key pieces. We haven't even got all the edge pieces and we really haven't got some of the corner pieces. For example, the oceans. Our knowledge about deep ocean circulation where you can have huge amounts of heat energy stored for up to 10,000 years. But what they can't have is a situation where people just yank a paper out of the literature without having done any kind of analysis of it or, or verification of it and say, on this basis, we're going to start spending billions of dollars. Uh, that's just a recipe for a disaster. So why do so many scientists adamantly defend the theory that man caused global warming when the evidence is so weak? In the early 1990s, I led a multi-million dollar research effort on the effects of global warming on our nation's ecosystems. And what you'll find is about that time is that the government would begin to fund tremendously global warming research. It's about $2 billion a year then. It's up to $4 billion a year now. There's a whole cadre of scientists out there that are on what's called soft money. If they do not show a global warming connection, they will not get their next grant. And it's been shown time and time again when a scientist basically said, I cannot take this any longer, it's just not happening, they no longer get grants from the federal government. And they're out of a job. Those scientists that are skeptical about man-caused global warming are repeatedly accused of being funded by big oil and industry. Yet the opposite is true. If industry funding corrupts someone's message, however, uh, however, I suggest the alarmists have an awful lot of explaining to do. They receive an awful lot more in industry and industry-related funding every year. But let's just make the record, the public record is quite clear. We do not receive lots of money from big oil. And for some reason, that seems to be the claim that uh, the alarmists want to shift the debate onto, even though they know the truth there, okay. too. Many of these companies actually play hardball politics to get Congress to spend more money on global warming research and to pass economically damaging legislation. But why? The cost of global warming is huge. We had a hearing, uh, Mr. Vice President, in this uh, committee where we had many of the companies who came in and, and were embracing the idea that man-made gases are causing climate change, only to find out that without exception, each one of the five companies that was here testifying had to stand, they stood to gain not millions, but in a couple of cases, billions of dollars if we should put reductions on or a cap and trade policy or reductions on CO2. The question then becomes why? Why does Al Gore use what can only be described as Madison Avenue fear-mongering to try to convince you that the world is going to end unless we ratify the Kyoto Protocol and impose the international solutions to stop man-caused global warming? What possible reason could there be? Congressman Don Young of Alaska provides some insight. The environment is being used for a power struggle. The environment is being used for centralized government. The environment is being used to make a one-world government. And if you don't think this is, is not occurring, just see what's happening in the United States. This is an awakening call. Don't know about that last claim, because that's certainly subject to political huh. uh, interpretations for sure. What do you think about some of what you heard in that clip, including, of course, your co-author was one of the people quoted in that clip. Oh, well, as usual, Ross uh, is <laughs> probably the most sensible of the lot. <laughs> you were shaking your head a little bit yeah, during some of that. I was reacting to the, the uh, jigsaw puzzle one. Okay. Uh, I think that one thing you have to understand about uh, so-called skeptics is that we're uh, a pretty motley bunch. Uh, we don't, uh, we're not like an organized group and we disagree about lots of things sure. among each other. 
Um, what, no consensus? Uh, no, uh, well, we don't certainly <laughs> don't. Uh, and, of course, we don't have any funding. You know, we're just actually, it's amazing that we've been able to uh, to, to do what we've been able to do with so little. Well, it sounds a little jigsaw puzzly to me. How, how do you reject well, that Well, it's the analogy. nature of the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think people, it's it's much, much, much more complex than a jigsaw, jigsaw puzzle. It's not like you can kind of see, well, this is sort of the oh, picture. Oh, I see. So you see a jigsaw puzzle as being something real simple. Real simple. <laughs> you That's haven't right. seen me trying That's to right. put one together. Uh, it's because <laughs> I, imagine that the jigsaw puzzle has, um, is not it assumes you know the missing pieces. Is that what well, no, it's just that the, not just that, but also that the pieces are independent of each other. Mm-hmm. So you put a, a piece in here and a piece in there, and, and they're, they're all independent. So, so if, you, if you pull one out, then you don't pull out five other ones. And, and think of a jigsaw puzzle where they're all kind of tied together in some way, and it doesn't fit unless you get them fit someplace else in the right way. Right. And, and so you're not even sure what pieces. I think that's maybe, I, I think it's misleading, because I don't think people don't understand just the... The complexity Enormi- of the it. enormity. Uh, this is a whole field called complex systems, right. and it's it's developed probably really in the last thirty years or so. And and the climax, uh, climate is is one of the um, granddaddies of them all as far as complex systems go. And uh, it's very hard to say, well, this bit we don't understand, but this one we do understand, and so forth, because they're all jumbled together in extremely subtle ways. Well, let's look a, look at a few of those bits. You sent me a, um, a link to an article you had. It's still online there. It's, it was published in um, the Financial Post last year, I think it was, wasn't it? And uh, quite a grabbing headline. It says, there is no global temperature. <laughs> and that appeared in the Financial Post June 27th, yes, 07. Um, wha- okay, tell tell the folks what you mean by that, because uh, don't we? Well, ha- it's kind of un- uh, it's it's. Um, I always feel really nervous when I start t- having to tell tell people about that. Is it one of the few oh, times? Oh, so I you send me the article that makes you feel nervous? Uh, yeah, I know, but I, I mean, I have to do this, right? I right. mean, I know it's, it's just I've got this like bad medicine for me. I've got to tell people about it, so on. So I'm going to do. Um, this uh, has to do with an issue which. Um, is very confusing to people. Uh, uh, you have people usually reason, and all I do, everyone does, they have certain ideas, common sense, and they have intuition. And the idea that that there is no global temperature is a little bit, uh, is a kind of a funny situation because there's a situation where the common sense actually goes against their intuition. So they're, they're, they don't agree. Um, because you can easily see that if um, glaciers are melting in the Himalayas that clearly cannot depend upon what the temperatures are doing at an airport in Miami. But that's, in fact, what happens if you co- compute a global temperature and say, well, that's affecting mm-hmm. uh, glaciers. It, it, it can't have anything to do with, that's common sense. But the intuition is that, you know, well, warming's good for me here even where we're sitting, well, so warming should be good everywhere. Anything yeah. we would call a global temperature, by definition, would have to be an average of some sort, which I know you object to that. No, oh, there's that, nothing no, wrong with no. averaging. It's just that uh, to argue that an average is a physical quantity. I mean, right. that, that, I mean you can average anything you like. And uh, the example I always like to but use... But would that be considered what most people would call, say, the global temperature some average of some sort? Well, it's a very particular set of averages that, that are considered to officially global temperature. But they... That average is itself not a temperature, not thermodynamically speaking. Right, it's correct. not a proper temperature. And I think the problem is that people have this intuitive idea that temperature and energy are the same thing. And uh, that's something that they probably were told, uh, I don't know, in, in secondary school or primary school or something like that. And, and it just kind of stays with you. And you have this intuitive idea that, oh, yeah, 
if I increase the temperature, then I'm increasing the internal energy. And, and that's a very misle extremely misleading idea. It's, it's okay in very limited circumstances, but uh, they, I always like to give the example of a laser. Uh, the temperature of, a la of laser light, for example, um, I, I recently wrote a paper oh, a couple of years back on the peak temperature of, um, of uh, light from a milliwatt laser, which is you know, like a pointer, laser mm -hmm. pointer. Mm -hmm. It has a temperature of about 100 billion degrees. 100 billion degrees. No, you're kidding. No. And, you know, here you've got a 100 billion degree um, beam. I can shine it on my hand. I don't feel it. So you know, temperature and heat aren't the same thing. I mean, that's physically they're very different things. Um, it's just that there's sort of the ideal gas idea that they're kind of the same sort of makes it sort of okay. And that's kind of how it, it continues. But in the meantime, you can calculate statistics of everything, well, anything. you got a little ahead of me uh, uh, here, too, with that yeah. concept, because you were talking about sunlight, which is not heat. You were describing that yeah. in the book. And uh, I think we'll come back to that one later. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just thinking then, okay, so there is no temperature. It's like having two people in the room. One's 100 years old and one's uh, 10 and saying the average person in the room is the age exactly between them, even though that person doesn't exist. Yeah, uh, well, and, and it's, that's kind of the idea. I, prefer, I often prefer to use the idea of um, averaging telephone numbers. I mean, you can average okay. a telephone number, but the question is, the, the average you get out, is that actually even a telephone number, or is it meaningful in any way? And, and uh, my co-author, Ross McKittrick, likes to talk about um, currency exchange rates and he says well why don't we take all the currency exchange rates of the world and average them well what does that mean uh, right. I don't know <laughs> a magic okay. number that you can yeah. make some well, claim the, to. the interesting well, thing is he okay. just got finished uh, doing some calculations on on this and using different definitions of, of averages he, he sent me an email recently about this and um, depending upon how the subtleties go uh, we are either in a case of warming or not at the moment depending on how you do the average mm -hmm. so Okay, well, we, we keep hearing, of course, the big one is Al Gore's greenhouse effect. Is that a real effect? Al Gore's or, greenhouse? Well, whoever, <laughs> he's the one promoting it. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, but the, uh, he, he's the main person attached to it, and he was really pushing it in an inconvenient truth. Oh, that that uh, exists way before Al Gore. Al Gore is oh, just understood. a very, very latecomer on all of this stuff. I in fact, I was uh, earlier on the I show, know. I was reading an article from 1955, Life magazine, talking about uh, the greenhouse effect oh, and, yeah. and its, its anticipated yeah. effect on the world's climate. Um, and more recently, I've been reading other stuff that says it's not there. Now, in your book, you say that the greenhouse effect isn't a greenhouse effect in the way yeah. people understand it. How does it actually work? Uh, it's actually kind of um, a, a kind of a joke, actually, um, that, that you learn when you take an advanced course on radiative transfer, which uh, radiative transfer is a subject you, um, you, you have to learn to see how light is moved around through uh, infrared light and, and light is moved around through the atmosphere. It's sunlight is a kind of radiation. I mean, people don't like to think of it because radiation is, they think of nuclear bombs or something, but it's sunlight's a happy form of radiation. Mm -hmm. And it comes in and you have to learn about it. And one of the first things you learn is this kind of, you know, inside joke, everyone has a good laugh, is that, by the way, greenhouses, you know those greenhouses? They don't work by the greenhouse effect. Right. <laughs> and that's just the fact. And um, the... Uh, usual argue, comment that people make is, say, well, you know, doesn't that actually make a difference? And, and at some level it doesn't uh, because, you know, you have energy flows in and energy flows out and that's really all about balancing energy flows and at that level it doesn't. But in terms of understanding the climate problem, uh, there actually is a very big physical difference between um, 
the way a greenhouse works. So a greenhouse works because, there, well, put it this way, there are two kinds of flows off of the surface of the earth, and one of them is radiative, and the other is through matter, through through molecules, and, mm -hmm. and uh, movement of air and uh, movement of water uh, entrained in the air. And uh, th that's th those are the sort of two mechanisms. And their physics of, of both types are very different, and the governing equations for both are very different. We understand one much better than the other in terms of uh, the sort of real basics. And so if you say one does one thing and the other does the other, you're actually mixing up two different kinds of physics, and it learn it, the result is you end up saying something that's certain, like a greenhouse, it somehow gets grafted onto the atmosphere, which is a very different physical problem, which is not certain, because there's this whole business of complexity of dynamics and so forth, and fluid dynamics, particularly turbulence and convection and so forth, are completely eliminated in the greenhouse situation, the real greenhouse, but not in the atmosphere. And, 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 the, and of course the greenhouse works on a physical blockade of glass, keeping heat into a fixed structure. Well, it, it uh, actually, I mean, it, you know, get rid of the H word, the heat word. Just, yeah, just okay. think about matter boiling away from the surface, like air conditioning. It's kind mm -hmm. of like the the air movements suck the heat away and they boil away up into the into the sky. Um, and the radiation, the, the, the light, the infrared light, pulls the energy away from the surface. And in the case of the greenhouse, what happens is you put up glass and it just shuts off the boiling air. So it's like you turned off the air conditioning. Ah, uh, so, it's, it's, so it's not the... Again, I guess this might relate back to the other thing I want to get to later is the fact that the sun itself is not directly re radiating heat per se. The heat is created when that sunlight hits a surface of well, some sort and the photons actually react in some way. I'm I, trying I, to understand the science. I hate to get all thermodynamical about this, well. but, but you know, the, the heat, the word heat, I think, um, is, uh, has a lot of historical basis in thermodynamics way back to the beginning, but I think it's caused a great deal of confusion. So just think about it as energy. Just think about energy in and energy out and don't sort of put another color to, to energy, you can call it heat, because then you get into some all kinds of very oh. unpleasant disputes okay, in I will, I will, dynamics, you know. I will definitely try to remember that for yeah. the balance of the conversation right. today. I'm joined in studio by Professor Christopher Essex, uh, co-author mm. of Taken by Storm. We've got to take a quick break for some very important messages at the bottom of the half hour. We'll be with you till noon. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to call in. And just so you know, this next clip that you're going to hear is my guest, Christopher Essex, on Jim Chapman's show a couple of years ago expressing a little bit of frustration he had with the whole global warming uh, issue at that time. We might comment on that when we come back, and we'll be back right after this. See that, but the, the thing that I think really vexes me about the whole Kyoto thing is, is that what they've constructed is something that really doesn't make sense at all. I mean, it's a kind of dysfunctional kind of construction because um, even if you use the models that were the basis of being concerned about Kyoto to begin with, the effect is negligible. So it doesn't really have any environmental effect anyway. And of course you can see why. If you look at the details, you can see that a large number of the countries, according to the, the whole deal, don't actually have to do anything. Um, so it's like having a leaking bucket, you know. So, I mean, if you really were going to do this, the Kyoto Protocol can't really do it anyway. So. And, and it seems to be impossible to say that. It sort of seems to be sort of like some kind of a, uh, sort of creating, doing a criminal act or something if you, if, if you say that, 
you know, hey, look, you know, I mean, none of the countries in the third world actually have to, they can just keep burning coal as much as they like. And that has, yeah, I mean, it, you don't have to be an economist. I mean, my co-author, Ross, is an economist, so he can speak better about this. But you don't have to be an economist to figure out that, you know, if I'm some kind of tycoon, my father-in-law likes to use that term. So <laughs> but if, you, if you're some kind of tycoon and, and you want to uh, keep making your money and you don't have to worry about... Uh, you don't want to worry about any kind of special controls that are put on you about CO2. It's simple. You ship your factory to Mexico, and, um, and uh, there in Mexico, they can produce all the CO2 they want. Mm -hmm. And uh, what have we actually accomplished? Have we solved the environmental problems? Have we improved our, our economy? I mean, that's the obvious thing. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's th these kinds of questions somehow are not askable or answerable in this kind of debate. It's all um, a kind of... Uh, um, it, it's so political in the sense that, you know, if you, if you, you know, raise your hand and say, hey, wait a minute, they're more concerned about whether you're qualified to say this stuff, mm -hmm. I mean, or you're more concerned about whether you're, um, so, you know, some part of some kind of a, uh, well, being paid by the oil companies, I think, is the, the, the big yeah, thing. Yeah, the big one. I'm not paid by the oil companies, <laughs> you know, I'm just doing my job, you know, and, and uh, um, I, that's what I'm trying to do. And, and so I'm, we wrote this book, and we had a lot of fun writing it, uh, because a lot of the stuff that comes out of this is really kind of funny. And uh, I know when people read it, they, uh, they, they laugh. It's so. a fascinating read. It really yeah. is. and water are the basic elements of the universe. They can be found in every object, every animal, every person, everything. The rock in this wood can be felt by its weight and hardness. If we expose the wood to flame, we can encourage the fire within the wood to show itself. We can also see smoke, which is a part of the sky. The water in wood is difficult to see. Sometimes the elements are buried deep within the objects, but the four elements are always there. <clears throat> yes, Jaden? I do not believe that is correct. Oh? I believe you are reasoning by analogy, classifying objects and phenomena according to superficial observation rather than empirical evidence. Wood, for example, does not contain fire simply because it is combustible, nor does it contain rock simply because it is heavy. Wood, like any complex organic form, is composed of thousands of different chemical compounds, none of which is fire. That will be enough for now, Jaden. As I told you earlier, our friend Jaden here has lost much of his memory, so I wouldn't put too much faith in any of his ideas. Want to hear something? Just dismiss them. <laughs> Don't put any faith in there. Jayden, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. you, you, I noticed you laughing there because felt, I felt a little bit like that person there. You know, they were talking about heat and versus radiation and stuff like that. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW, where my guest today is Professor Christopher Essex, co-author of the book Taken by Storm, and we're talking about global warming. Again, five one nine six six one thirty six hundred. If you've got any questions for the good doctor. I was fascinated myself. I, I, I don't know how, we're still on subject here, but there was a paragraph in your book that, to me, because of my layman's interest in science, kind of piqued my interest, and I wanted to make sure I got this in on the show before we went too far. It had to do with that poem I read at the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
the one that said, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost, all for the want of a nail. Mm -hmm. And the comment you make right after that, and I'll quote it here, is, quote, a specific chain of events ending in a significant result can be traceable to the smallest origins. It doesn't mean that small things have to be powerful in themselves. The amount of energy is beside the point. That's what caught my attention right mm -hmm. there. It is the particular sequence of events that an initial event sets in motion that can, that can uh, give even the smallest event its significance. Pushing over the first domino in a long row of dominoes is a classic example. Turning a key to start a powerful machinery is another. They are not just started but controlled in this manner. This is not new. It is part of life. It is everywhere. It's on page three of the first edition of Taken by Storm. I understand mm -hmm. there's a second edition there out now. There is a second edition. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, when I, what I found interesting was you were talking about energy earlier, and this is the first time I saw the sequence of events as not being an energy event, if, if that makes sense, or not being driven mm -hmm. by energy it's per dynamical. se. dynamical. Yeah. So that's... Can you expand on that a bit? Because it's kind of got me a little confused. I'm always thinking, you know, that every event is sort of a form of energy, and it isn't in that sense. Because I'm starting to rethink my whole concepts well, of energy now I, I, talking to you. you know, in the 19th century, um, the idea of energy and energy conservation and all these things uh, were um, very, uh, well, they were at their beginnings, and uh, it wasn't widely, it wasn't a popular idea to use the word energy. Um, the word energy, I think, came into the popular uh, thinking much later than that. And uh, certainly by the time the 1970s came around and you have various gas prices, uh, gas crises and things like that, people would be um, uh, using the term energy quite freely. But I think often people use the energy, the word energy incorrectly. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a quantity that comes up in physics, uh, but they use it kind of... Um, vaguely mixed up with the words force and mechanism and they're just kind of all jumbled together and uh, they use it interchangeably with power uh, which is a different quantity's rate at energy consumption these things are all just jumbled together and so it's extremely hard to talk about what's going physically when going on physically when you, you have to realize these are completely different things is there is there no simple way for the layman to understand science is there no simple language to use are, are we just short of concepts mm -hmm. are we always because i know a, a large part of uh, um the the concern in your mm -hmm. book is ex for example you talk about uh, analogy versus uh, um, you know the reality and, and the examples we use to explain things because we always talk in terms of analogy because we have to you know mm -hmm. horse and buggy we call the car <laughs> a horseless carriage you know yeah, yeah. it took us a while to get uh, used to the new concept well, I, I really was delighted when I was uh, I was uh, reviewing a, a physics department in uh, in Ireland uh, in February and I uh, was being driven around on these divided highways known as dual carriageways. I, I thought that was a pretty charming term, you know. <laughs> 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 um, <clears throat> anyway. Um, Romantic. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it just it got a, it gave me a big smile. It was yeah. delightful. Um, is there no easy way? Um, well, I mean, I think in some sense people are awfully unfair to, to uh, abstract or theoretical kinds of ideas. Um, you know, even ideas that people learned when they were in elementary school, if you bring them up, 
then people immediately start to become nervous about it as if you know they hadn't seen it before for instance if i were to talk about the pythagorean theorem mm -hmm. you know people say oh that's terrible that's mathematics well probably there's not really that much to it and most people have seen it and uh, or if i talk about the number pi it seems like it's some sort of technical thing but the reality is that people actually are very sophisticated and abstract you know common people are very sophisticated and abstract uh, and all you have to do is look at some of the things they do. So you realize, that, for example, I mean, I give you an example of an extremely abstract idea that people consider completely routine. Far more abstract and far more sophisticated an idea than a lot of the scientific ideas I talk about. Life insurance, for example. Mm -hmm. What an abstract thing. I mean, if you think about it. Well, right? I was even thinking, I thought you might say something like money itself. Well, money itself, yeah. visiting the bank. I mean, right. you imagine you're a Martian and you're visiting a bank and Wouldn't you're wondering what, what the people are doing. I mean, it's just some strange cultural right, you know, I mean. Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, and, and you but see it's it very sophisticated and very abstract. So people are capable of understanding this stuff. And I think it's kind of unfair that they kind of think that when now suddenly you say, well, now we have to talk about this stuff. Well, you have a choice. You can either talk about this stuff or not talk about it. If you're not going to talk about it, then let's not talk about global warming. But if you want to talk about climate change and everything else, then you got to talk about this stuff. It's just part of the, th the deal. And maybe you don't have to understand it now, but over time you should slowly develop it and, you know, give, give yourself some, I mean, don't, you know, whip yourself to know it all right away. But over 10 years, 20, this has been going on for 20 years. I mean, it should be that our uh, mechanism for understanding this stuff allows for more and more technical sophistication. But in fact, all we're really getting is more political intensity rather than... Then, than then that brings up, then, you know, that actually gives me hope in a way, because then what you're saying is the average guy has common sense and it's pretty... So some, somebody else... I have a lot else, of faith in that. Yeah, some... Huh? I have a lot of faith you, in that. Okay, I, mean, I, I, I generally really do smart too. people. You know, and so my faith is really gone when it comes to the whole, you know, poli using politics to pursue certain interests and, and that issue. So maybe that's where the problem is. But I don't want to leave the science issue yet. Just before the break, you were correcting me. You said energy is not heat, mm -hmm. and I that made me recall the part I read in your book over the past week, which I've been reading about sunlight. And in there you write that, uh, you say, consider sunlight, which is not heat. You said mm -hmm. it again there. Despite what some people seem to think, like me, I felt like, uh, you know, that woman talking at the beginning of that Star Trek clip there. <laughs> uh, it can be converted to heat on absorption, mm -hmm. but how that takes place is the issue. Sunlight is a collection of photons with different energies. When the energy of the sun varies, it does not vary uniformly over all photon energies. Its brightness varies enormously in the higher energy photons, for example. And these changes could lead to changes in the stratospheric chemistry, which could lead to other changes in dynamics. It is not the total energy that would make the dynamics different. It is just that it sets up the circumstances to redirect other energies. If you think of sunlight as heat, such a scenario cannot be seen. Although you say you're not saying that a mechanism like that has been proven, you, you point in that point. Mm -hmm. um, when you say that, that brought up another. Are proofs possible in dynamics? In, in, in proofs? What do you mean? Like scientific proofs? I mean, I'm in an know? applied mathematics right. department, so I live with people who take the word proof very seriously. Oh, well, I understand. So, that's so, what, that's exactly so, what I mean. So uh, you know, you, you have to when you, when you use that word. You know, I, I have to be. But you know, there's so my many ears perk up. And yeah, <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, that's why I knew yeah. it would be. A, it, yeah. it would push a button. I yeah. put it in quotation mm -hmm. marks. Um, but our, I was, re you know, it's so complex, dynamics and turbulence. You know, I read, um, I forget his name, James, 
Gallick, or is that his name? Who wrote Glick. Glick, yeah, who wrote uh, Chaos, a uh, book uh-huh, a while mm-hmm, ago, and, mm-hmm, I, and mm-hmm. I kind of remember reading that. I read it twice, found it very fascinating. Uh-huh. And it seems like you're dealing with a lot of that kind of thinking and theory, and it almost makes everything unpredictable in, in what Indeed. we might normally consider scientific well, predictability. So that's why I ask... Is there a proof, you know, like you have a whole movement here that says we know this is happening as though they have the proofs. Uh, or, now, you see, we, we, I'm we're, getting everything we're confused sliding, again. We're sliding I? into okay. uh, um, many, many different issues. Oh, here. you're giving and, me that look. Okay. And uh, so, I mean, are, are we talking about proofs about, about climate change? Or are we talking about proofs about dynamical processes like in, in Well, let's stick to the dynamic process and turbulence. Well, are there any kind of proofs? Dynam- dynamic processes... Uh, y- you can write, you can look at systems of equations and actually study them and do j- serious mathematics and prove things and and so forth. But when you slip over into applying these kinds of ideas to um, a complex system, a real physical, you know, dyed-in-the-wool complex system, then it becomes more difficult because you have to balance not only your understanding of the mathematics but also your understanding of the of the f- what physics is taking place, what chemistry is taking place, and and accept the fact that you can't measure things exactly, and so forth, and so this is a it's a it's a subtle thing. Mm-hmm. So, so you can have a proof for a part of the puzzle. <laughs> I'm not yeah. supposed to use that word, but not for the whole. Is that what you're saying? Well, you can you can do the mathematics, right? Yeah, the, 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 and there are limits to that. I mean, there's that's an area of research people are pushing. With that now, I mean, one of the things uh, that I think people don't realize is that the governing equation f- that we understand and have understood since the 19th century for the motion of fluids um, is uh, something that we don't actually know how to solve. So we, I, we we can't actually solve it. And so what we do is we kind of chop it up into little bits and put it on a computer Cuisinart, and uh, we attempt to solve it. But of course, we only are solving a, an approximation. Uh, of it, and um, the general view is that that's okay. And so, when you hear your nightly weather reports, which involve basically solving these equations, it's probably not too bad. But no one really has high expectations for these things anyway, so it's not it's not really an issue. But if you're really trying to push this stuff to the limit, and you're trying to say what's going to happen a hundred years from now, then I think that you're really, you know, you're kind of flying without. Uh, without a net. (laughs) Listen, our time is just flying right now. We've got to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to tie this back into politics again. I think we're going to have to have you back again (laughs) at some point in the future, because I'm not even getting to half of this stuff yet. So uh, Mm. uh, here's another excerpt from the show, uh, Yes, Minister, in in terms of, uh, this was from a show where uh, the minister wanted to discredit a very valid... It's mentioned in the second edition, uh, Sir Humphrey is mentioned. uh, Oh, in your second edition. Yeah, you told me about that, and I had the first edition. I was looking for it to see if I could get the right uh, Mm -hmm. clip. But anyway, this one might relate to you as well, and it's about uh, them trying to discredit a very valid scientific study and how they might go about doing it. Remember that this script was written some some Mm 20-some-odd years ago. See if it sounds a little bit familiar. Take a break right now. You still don't look very happy, Minister. No, it's all very well, Humphrey, but suppose this report isn't as conclusive as you say it is. Mm. Who is this fellow Henderson, anyway? Oughtn't I to meet him? Oh, no need. Professor Henderson is a brilliant Cambridge biochemist, and he's been chosen with some care. Suppose he produces one of those cautious wait-and-see reports. Well, in that case, we don't publish it. 
We use the American report instead. Oh, ah. <laughs> You mean we suppress it? Certainly not. We just don't publish it. What's the difference? Oh, it's all the difference in the world. Suppression is the instrument of totalitarian dictatorships. We don't do that sort of thing in a free country. Oh, we simply take a democratic decision not to publish it. <laughs> Fine. And what am I supposed to say to the press and Parliament? We were hoping the Henderson report would say we'd made a wise decision. Instead, they say we've cocked it up, so we're going to pretend that this report doesn't exist. Oh, very droll, Minister. Well, what would I say? Well, there is a well-established government procedure for, for deciding not to publish reports. Is there? Really? Of course. You simply discredit them. Good heaven. How? <laughs> well, stage one, you give your reasons in terms of the public interest. You hint at security considerations. Do you mind if I make a note? Mm. This could come in useful. I wouldn't mind discrediting some of the party's idiotic research documents. Well, you point out that the report could be used to put unwelcome pressure on government because it might be misinterpreted. Well, anything could be misinterpreted. The Sermon on the Mount could be misinterpreted. Indeed, it could well be argued that the Sermon on the Mount, had it been a government report, should certainly not have been published. <laughs> a most irresponsible document. All that stuff about the meek inheriting the earth could do irreparable damage to the defence budget. <laughs> You're right. What else? Well, you say it'd be better to wait for a wider and more detailed study over a longer time scale. Well, suppose there isn't one. Better still, you commission one. Gives you even more time to play with. <laughs> and all this is what you call stage one? Yes. Now, in stage two, you go on to discredit the evidence that you're not publishing. Well, how, if you're not publishing it? Oh, really, Minister, it's much easier if it's not published, obviously. You do it by press leaks, of course, not directly. You say it leaves some important questions unanswered, that much of the evidence is inconclusive, that the figures are open to other interpretations, that um, certain findings are contradictory, and that some of the main conclusions have been questioned. Suppose they haven't. Then question them. <laughs> Then they have. <laughs> <laughs> but to make accusations of this sort, I mean, you'd have to go through it with a fine-tooth code. No, 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 you, you say all these things without reading it. There's always some questions unanswered. Such as? Well, the ones that weren't asked. <laughs> <laughs> and that's stage two? Yes. Now, in stage three, you undermine recommendations. Not really a basis for long-term decisions. Not sufficient information on which to base a valid assessment. Not really any need for a fundamental rethink of existing policies. Broadly speaking, endorses current practice. All that sort of thing is easy. And that always does the trick? Nearly always. Suppose it doesn't. Then you move on to stage four. In stage four, you discredit the man who produced the report, off the record, of course. You say that he's harbouring a grudge against the government, or that he's a publicity seeker, or, better still, that he used to be a consultant to a multinational company. Supposing he wasn't? Then he's hoping to be. <laughs> Everybody's hoping to be a consultant to a multinational. <laughs> or he's trying for a knighthood, or a chair, or a vice-chancellorship. Really, Minister, there are endless possibilities. Oh, excuse me, Minister. Yes. Uh, the press office have just rung to say... That
Sounds like there are endless possibilities in terms of discrediting reports. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where I am joined in studio by Professor Christopher Essex, co-author of Taken by Storm. And just in case I forget to mention it before the end of the show today, make sure you catch him at the London Central Library from 7 to 9 p.m. this coming Wednesday, where Toronto Sun columnist Lori Goldstein will also be there. Uh, tickets are $20, $5 for students, elementary, secondary, post-secondary, and it's being held at the Wolf Hall at uh, the London Public Library. So that is this coming Wednesday, if you're interested. You can check for advanced tickets at www.forestcityinstitute.ca. Uh, Professor Essex, now, did that clip from Yes Minister touch any nerves or anything familiar about that? Do you ever see that? Not that, that you see the planning of you know <laughs> of politicians doing that, but you feel any of that out there? That uh, I mean, it sounds to me a lot well, of what Kyoto was about see, was this kind of thinking. This this whole thing really started. I mean, I've been in this for a long, long. One of your chapters, time. by the way, in the first edition yeah. was Kyoto, son of doctrine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've been in this for a long, long, long time, and uh, it really, you know, I was not really too happy with the sort of. Um, climate connection with climate and and policy and so forth and, uh, early on back in the 1980s uh, but you know this that's it, it it was what it was but then it started getting really crazy at the beginning of the 90s and it's been going on for 20 years and uh, so all of this stuff is so familiar I just sort of kind of you know yawn you know I'm still like oh yes yeah they're trying to smear people you know and so forth I mean the thing is that Someone I consider it kind of offensive, and, and, and it just gets yeah. me. I don't know how I can just... I'm kind of blasé about yeah, it now. I mean, be. it's just part of the normal life. Um, the, the, thing, the thing about it is that you have to understand that political thinking is very different than scientific thinking. Well, that's for sure. And uh, I, it can, I can summarize it really well. Someone explained to me about how politics works, and I know that when I've attempted to try to comprehend or act politically and so forth, I often do a just terrible job. I just don't have the right talent for it. But they explained to me that in politics, perception is reality. And I, and I, I, I look at that statement and I just, just like, it just makes no sense to me at all. I just can't, it right, it's me. completely anti-scientific. Perception, perception yeah. is reality. And of course, in the business I'm in, reality is reality, right? So right. it's kind of a very different way of, of doing things. And so, you know, I, I'd say, well, you know, I always kind of hope that, you know, if I explain something or we get into a discussion and we work together to find out what the truth is, even if I am wrong, because, I mean, that's part of the, the nature of science is, is to be wrong. So I respect people who have other points of view on this. And there are a lot of good scientists who think differently than I do about this. And I think that's perfectly fine because we're all together trying to find out what the truth is. But when you get into this kind of sort of political kind of thinking, um, it it just kind of flows back into the science and makes everything kind of unpleasant and, and, and then people aren't actually making any advances in the science because they're so busy worrying about the politics. You know, I get worried when I when I read constantly that governments are funding everything from science to research to even our health care and cancer research and when you realize what's really going on in the back rooms of political thinking you wonder if they'll ever if ever have a chance of doing anything and you see all the people in the professions who become dependent on that income uh, from a source that's not direct to a market but coming from a government let's say um, isn't that tremendously um, tempting or what's the right word you know you, you might be 
you might be faith, faithful to your truth of your science, but if somebody's paying you a lot of money to, you know, sell cigarettes and tell people it's good for them, <laughs> well, uh, a lot of people might bend to that. I mean, I can see well, I, their I livelihood think depends see, on it. Being a scientist at heart and doing this my entire adult life, I don't worry about the motives of people. I think that's, I think that is ultimately, immediately a political. Sure. Way of thinking, and and I. That's what I'm saying. We're in politics. I, I, I but I, I resist that when it comes to scientific issues. I think that ultimately every idea in science is uh, subject to uh, checking. It's it's can, should be put to the test, and it's not just good enough to do things once. Everything has to be verified and checked, and so if someone says this is the fact, well, okay, fine, let's check it. So it, the motive behind it really doesn't matter. Otherwise, I could turn around and say, well, look at all these environmental groups that are receiving money from oil companies. Ah, you see? Yeah. I mean, they, and they, they do. They receive lots of money from oil companies, but of course, that's never really held against them. <laughs> <laughs> We've got about a minute or so left. Mm. I just just one last thing. Were you surprised? You wrote in, in, in the first mm. edition of your book, in, in the chapter Kyoto, son of doctor, and I, I, st- I like I like that title, <laughs> but you wrote that uh, we did quote, too. That's yeah, why we laughed when we yeah, did. quote uh, yeah. no governments have indicated. And this you wrote in two thousand and two, or before before publishing the book have have indicated a willingness to use carbon dioxide taxes. Were you surprised to see the Liberal Party just going nuts this election with wanting to bring in exactly that carb- no, uh, CO two? I'm not surprised. Um, at that time, you said no governments have indicated any kind of willingness. All of a sudden, instead of going in the opposite direction, we're still going into the craziness, uh, which this election, I think, the last one kind of proved how, mm. how nuts the whole CO2 thing is. Um, so you weren't surprised? No, I, I, I think anything is possible. I mean, once you, can, <laughs> you, you worry about um, uh, the demise of uh, the Loch Ness Monster uh, because of global warming and uh, the population of kittens yeah. growing up because of this thing or... Uh, you know, you can go on to even more hysterical things uh, that are allegedly due to global warming. I mean, various kinds of emotional disturbances and so forth. Uh, you know, it's it's you know the the barn door has already been opened. I mean, anything. Uh, can you happen. know, I think you just started a whole other show because I I think I fear for science and for rational people who have to maneuver in such a irrational world around them, especially about their their area of expertise. I don't expect everybody Welcome to be an expert. to the Middle Ages. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and that seems to be what, what's happening. And, and it's, I think it's kind of scary. I don't want to end up on that note. But for those of you who want to hear more and maybe want to ask um, Professor Essex some questions directly, be sure to be at the library on that Wednesday night. I want to thank you, Professor Essex, for joining me today. Hope we'll have Thanks, you Bob. back in the future again because we didn't get to half of what I wanted to get into uh, more on the scientific thing, but I maybe we can talk a little away from the global warming thing, get into some more scientific principles, because uh, I do like to expound a little on that on this show. If uh, Even if I don't understand it all myself, I think it's good to well, be exposed. That's okay. I don't understand to, it all myself well, either. That's the nature of science, that's and right. uh, I guess that's the nature of radio, mind. too. That's it for this week, folks. And we hope that you will join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, act right, do right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So one of my friends doesn't want to come over my apartment for dinner because she's allergic to cats. Fine, I'll cook something else.
apartment for dinner because she's allergic to cats. Fine, I'll cook something else. <laughs>